Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader, and this is The Turning Point. We're here every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, live. And, of course, there are podcasts later on. Um, we can see that Spider-Man, the movie, has opened up. So superheroes and their franchises, Spring Eternal. Uh, and speaking of um, superheroes and uh, their origins, I just read a, a great book uh, called The Tencent Plague, the Great Comic Book Scare and How It Changed and How It Changed America, and this was published by Farrar Strauss in 2008, written by David Haydu. That's H A J D U. And like all good histories, this book ranges deeper and wider than its stated theme. And there's plenty of early history about comic books and uh, great descriptions of the people involved. 
uh, creating them. But the main focus of the book is the country's social and political war against comic books after World War II and into the 50s. And to talk about comic books and their evolution and reactions to them, we're very lucky to have a, a guest today, Paul Levitz. Uh, hiya. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me on. And thanks for being on. Uh, let me read uh, a brief bio so the listeners know who they're listening to, and then we're, uh, we can uh, jump off the roof with our capes on. Let's see. Okay. Uh, uh, by turns, Paul Levitz has been a comic fan editing the comic reader. He was an editor of Batman, a writer of comics, uh, the Legion of Superheroes, an executive for three decades, ending as president and publisher of DC Comics a historian, author of 75 Years of DC Comics, The Art of Modern Myth-Making, and an educator teaching at Columbia, Princeton, and other colleges. Um, so when you start, you started reading comic books, obviously, when you were a kid, but um, where, 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 where did you grow up? When did you start reading them? What was your era? Uh, I was a Brooklyn kid, born in 1956, so I started reading comics, I'm, I'm guessing, at about four. In those days, lots of kids had just a carton of assorted comics sitting in their basement, mm -hmm. and there were a couple of older kids on the block who had stacks of them, and those were the first comics I was exposed to. So, for instance, uh, who, who were the, uh, the characters? Who were the figures? Um, a lot of the comics of the day were genre stuff. Uh, science fiction, sort of in the same mood as the 50s science fiction movies of giant monsters, strange invasions of Earth. Superman and Batman and their related cast of characters were still popular in those days. wasn't a great time for the superheroes. The Marvel characters were just being born. I think I remember one Spider-Man comic sitting in, uh, in Lester's carton of comics. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it was well distributed in Brooklyn at that moment. Um, but and it, the explosion of superheroes that happened in, later in the '60s hadn't really begun yet when I was when I was just starting out reading it. Um, um, now, to to go back to the roots of comic books, I mean, uh, you know, this this book is a, a terrific book and it's very extensive, uh, has tremendous research, but. Just briefly, the roots of comics first started, comic books first started out as comics, like in the newspapers, right? The first comic books in America were reprints of the newspaper strips. Ah. Um, the strips had terrific cultural currency in the first half of the 20th century. You know, when you think about the 1920s, the 1930s, radio existed and provided some entertainment. Television didn't yet exist. And a lot of the families, particularly in the working classes, were not incredibly educated. It was very common for kids to leave school in middle school or high school years in much greater numbers than now uh, with some basic functional literacy, but not any sophisticated education. Mm -hmm. The comics were one of the most powerful ways of reaching people. Cartoons have a long history of being incredibly powerful ways of reaching people. Uh, one story I enjoy using when I teach about cartooning at particularly Columbia, because uh, it goes to New York history, 
is reminding people of the work of Thomas Nast, who was the cartoonist who helped bring down Tammany Hall, the political, almost dictators mm. of New York in the 1800s. And there's a moment in Nast's career when Tammany Hall approaches him with a bribe to get out of New York and stop doing these damn cartoons because they're, they're ruining us. Uh, the bribe they offered him, if you inflation adjusted to modern times, was about a billion dollars. Um, I don't, as wonderful as any uh, liberal commentator or uh, liberal cartoonist is today, I can't see anybody offering, I don't know, Rachel Maddow a billion dollars to get out of town as much as <laughs> she may be annoying the present administration. Well, the Nast was uh, extraordinary. I mean, there were other political cartoonists back back in those days, but Nast was astounding. If you've seen his cartoons, you can understand that a picture is worth a million. Talk about a billion words. I mean, it really, and that, that's a, a, a tradition. I guess it goes all the way back to uh, to Europe, to France, and to England, and other places too, right? Absolutely. There's, yeah, some, I mean, there's arguments about whether the comics are a descendant of the cave paintings of Lascaux or <laughs> where exactly the roots are, but. The modern American comic starts with Pulitzer and Hearst using comic strips for cir circulation building. And then in the 1930s in New York, you began to have companies reprint them in a number of different formats, but particularly the development of what you would recognize as a comic book. It's the trim size was a little different. The... Uh, number of pages varied a little bit, but it feels like the comics certainly that I grew up on or that you can still find in a comic shop today. So the uh, the books in the 30s, which is really when it, it just started to expand and explode even, and people started buying them uh, a lot. Um, um, who were these comics originally? These comics, uh, the strips, I understand, aimed at immigrants and people who had uh, left school early. or But the comic books... Were they, uh, in the 30s, were they aimed at uh, boys, I guess more boys than girls, but aimed at boys rather than uh, any adults? Uh, it, it was really both at that time. I mean, the first original comic books were original because it was a cheaper way to produce them. Uh, the reprints of the newspaper strips had proved successful. The rights cost, we understand, about $5 a page to get from the syndicates, and most of the best comic strips of the time had already been reprinted or were actively being reprinted. And an entrepreneur named Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson decided that the solution to these problems was to get a couple of the young kids who were drawing in chalk on sidewalks in New York, aspiring to be cartoonists, and instead of paying the reprint fees of five bucks a page, get them to create new things for three dollars or four dollars a page. And that became New Fun Comics, the first regularly published all original comic that sustained itself. And that was in 1935, and I don't think they cared who their audience was. <laughs> it, it was, it was just, we're talking about business here. Who are these people who published the comic books? Were they from, from some other business originally? Most of the first-generation uh, comic book publishers were Jewish immigrants uh, born on the other side who had come to America to 
finding new life. They were entrepreneurs, very much the same kind of human beings and the same origins as a lot of the guys who founded the movie industry about 15 or 20 years before them. Uh, they were kind of rough and tumble. They came up, in most cases, through either printing or magazine distribution. And they had, in a lot of cases, started in the what were called the pulp magazines, prose fiction with kind of lurid covers, maybe some lurid illustrations inside. Uh, one major company published things like spicy detective stories. Right, right. Which would have covers of women in outfits that, you know, these days are too modest for you to wear on the beach, but in those days were pretty close to Hustler. Um, there, were, there, was some, there was some gore, too, in these pulp covers, right? I know, like, guns. Many gone. of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sex and violence, the sort of traditional lowest common denominator selling points. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the, in the 1930s, when he took office, one of the things Mayor LaGuardia did early on was he did a strong anti-pornography campaign. Hmm. Uh, and some of these publishers who were in the rougher end of the pulp business looked around to see, okay, if this isn't the safe business anymore, I don't want to go to jail, uh, how do I move up the food chain, what's available? And they saw comics as something that the big publishers were not in. And they they moved into that line of business. So this uh, this uh, shared origin and shared uh, experience, you could see that, it, that that the pulps really did carry over, and sometimes into a lot of these uh, comic book covers and the illustrations. What about the the early in the thirties, the writers, uh, the artists, editors, people these like like that? Who were these people? Who who was coming up with these stories? Who was uh, illustrating them? Who were these Who were these people? You know, one of the things that I think has been true eternally in New York as a city fueled by immigration is that affiliative hiring has always been very powerful. Well, uh, let, me interrupt, let me interrupt for a second. So when, you, when you're referring to New York all the time, it's basically because New York City was the center of comic books, right? Not just because, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, all right, okay. Until about 1980, 95% of the comic books in America were created both as a business function and the creative people's residence in the New York metro area. Oh. Um, in the days before digital distribution, before digital transmission of artwork, uh, and before even FedEx for handling your art, uh, the writers and artists had to be centered around the publishers to bring in their work physically. So the, the and so the writers and the artists, uh, and the editors of these books. I mean, uh, they were from New York, or they drifted in from out of town. But a lot of them from the city itself, right? Absolutely, particularly the writers and the artists, uh, as they were growing up in those years. You, in the ninth, in the early years, the nineteen thirties and the nineteen forties, the artists were disproportionately street kids in New York, um, usually first-generation born-here Jewish kids or began to be Italian kids. Those were sort of the two immigrant groups that moved in. The Jewish kids, largely because they, these were kids who loved to draw, and they were not in a position to go to an expensive art school. The advertising agencies and the 
more expensive, slick magazines that had illustrations um, were not encouraging to Jewish kids at that time. Um, but these companies were owned by somebody who sounded like them, who they recognized as being the same kind of person who was an uncle. In some cases, it was an uncle. Mm -hmm. So uh, Stan Lee, who went on to extraordinary fame for his work creating or co-creating much of the Marvel cast of characters, was Stan Lee Lieber, born in Brooklyn, goes to high school at DeWitt Clinton in the Bronx, and goes to work for a cousin of his mother as a 17-year-old kid. Um, and say, takes a pen name because someday he's going to become famous for writing the great American novels. He's going to save his real name for that. So he writes the comics and edits them as Stan Lee. So there's a lot of, uh, lot of aspiring fine arts painters, uh, um, high-caliber illustrators, novelists. All these people had these dreams, and some of them went on to, to achieve that. But a lot of them, this is, this is basically who the comics, uh, the comic books uh, attracted. Wasn't it also because these guys uh, who own these places uh, and publish these books were notoriously cheap or dishonest about uh, paying people? Like any industry, there was a wide variety of people in it, and this was not a sophisticated time. The, the writers and artists certainly didn't have agents. Some had lawyers. Most didn't. Um, there were some outfits that were real challenges to get paid by. Most of them paid for the work as it came in, but it was done on a very much piecework basis, not dissimilar to what was going on in the garment industry at the time. You know, go home and give me X number of pages. I will pay you this many dollars a page when you bring them in. There was no great literary aspiration of most of them. Hmm. One or two, a guy named Will Eisner, who was the man who our industry's Oscars are named after. Um, Eisner, even though he came from the same rough background in all of it, another DeWitt Clinton graduate, um, as early as 1941-1942 is starting to be quoted in interviews that he thinks comics can be an art and literary form. But very, very few people were even whispering that in quiet terms between themselves. For most of them, it was, oh, God, I got a job drawing. I don't have to be a manual worker. I don't have to have the kind of awful job that my father had. Of course, we're talking about Depression-era time. Mm -hmm. So just the fact that they had a job and were able to feed their families was extraordinary. The business practices were, were rough and tumble. Um, no, one, no one was getting rich doing creative work in that time. See people who created some of the great characters did very, very well. Um, but it, it's a function of the time period going on as mm -hmm. much as it is anything else. So the, um, the, the people who did this, a lot of the people who were doing the writing and the illustrating, and some of it was getting, I mean, incredibly good. I mean, I don't know about the stories. Sometimes the stories were repetitive or recycled or just stolen from other places. But the, the art was uh, uh, extraordinary back in those days. People were, were experimenting with different kinds of uh, art that had never really quite been done before in, in the same way. And basically, also, you're talking about these people. A lot of these were teenage boys or guys like in their early 20s, right? Yeah, I mean, these were 
a lot of the great work of the field was done by people um, very early in their lives. Eisner um, found one of the early shops, uh, basically uh, a structured organization to provide finished material to publishers who didn't have their own editorial staff. He's 19 when he founds that. Uh, when he starts doing a strip called The Spirit as a newspaper supplement comic book, 1941, so that's, he's 24 years old, and that becomes one of the great creative breakthroughs of how to use a page in comics, how to tell a story in comics. Uh, lots of the guys were very young. Some of them started as young as 13 or 14 years old doing the work. Were there any? Jack Kirby. I'm sorry. Goes on to Jack Kirby, who goes on to be the artist who designs all of the Marvel characters practically um, and co-creates co them. Um, was Jacob Kurtzberg, a uh, little little Jewish kid from uh, Essex Street. And then, like you said, there's some Italians uh, who uh, you know who wandered in, and then. Um uh, um, and but it was a, it was an industry where, I mean, there was some black uh, I guess few and far between, but there were some black uh, illustrators and writers too. I very few. Mm -hmm. uh, the industry do doesn't really open up in any meaningful way to people of color until the 1980s. Um, so like everything else, maybe, in, maybe, yeah. maybe the 1970s, um, representative of the time, the the barriers that existed both because of educational issues, because of affiliative hiring, and because of outright racism, uh, were very significant for a long time. And uh, the comics in those days, was it, uh, what did they cost a nickel or ten cents? What did they cost in those days? The early, almost all of the early comics cost ten cents. Mm -hmm. And for that, you got uh, usually something like 64 pages, uh, very few ads in it, because no advertisers were interested in reaching that unknown kind of audience and the publishers weren't sophisticated enough to figure out how to sell advertising space effectively. Um, but you you got a wealth of material and a passionate amount of creativity from from the young people who were creating them. Now, you mentioned that uh, the same companies are often the same companies that had been or were simultaneously publishing Spicy Detective and all these lurid covers and weird science and everything else you could possibly imagine. All this stuff. Um, they were also publishing the comic books, right? So um, I'm trying to figure out all this sex and violence, which comic books later became famous for and got attacked for in waves over the decades, all this lurid stuff and sex and violence... Um, the people who came there from the streets, these uh, writers and illustrators, did they, they, they didn't bring that with them by themselves. I mean, this is the way the world was back in newspaper stories, right? Um, early, the early dime novels, the pulp stuff, all that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, the classic line in the newspaper industry was, if it bleeds, it leads. <laughs> um, yeah. Look, we, you turn on the television today, and from... Game of Thrones on to uh, NCIS, you have people dying, you have sexuality. Uh, this is part of what the deck of storytelling is. The, the downside 
from a literary standpoint of the early comic books is that because the subject matter was kind of churned out very quickly, very inexpensively, there wasn't a lot of literary aspiration. So you, you had you had violence. You didn't really have much sexuality to speak of in the early comics, mm-hmm. but you didn't have very much that spoke to human behavior in a wider array. It really isn't until decades into the form, the beginnings of the the graphic novel in the late 1970s, the early 1980s, that you begin to see in America people using comics to really talk about morality, about mortality, about what makes us human, about relationships in deeper and more complex fashion. The, one of the reasons the graphic novel term, which is really a very awkward term, uh, but the reason that there is some logic to the term is that's kind of the point at which, like a novel, you begin to explore these true literary things. But that's not um, what the comic books were about back in the 30s and 40s. I mean, you know, they... Not at all. You know, it wasn't the same audience, and it wasn't the same thought going into it. So... So this, uh, all these comic books, and, and eventually they're uh, getting to be so popular, and this is another part of the whole uh, phenomenon of comic books, is that they were something that belonged to an entire world of children, which the parents really had very little understanding of. And this is something that children prized in a way, is they had their own special thing. It was the comic books. Whatever it is in every generation is always something, right? But uh, they had this thing, and the parents weren't paying attention. And sometimes these things were really extreme or out of bounds. I mean, a lot of the, the writers and the illustrators, according to this book, and it is a wonderful book, that this, uh, The Ten Cent Plague. David, David's a terrific journalist. He really has a, did a deep study of the material. He connected things that people had not really focused on previously and explored it very thoroughly. So so here so here we are with this uh, with this thing which is basically belongs to kids and it's sort of totally out of control uh, in terms of uh, anybody paying attention to it in any kind of established way but inevitably there were negative there were reactions from the adult world right because otherwise this was a kind of a thing that belonged to kids even like an outlaw thing so when were the first negative reactions to these comic books uh, denunciations you know from columnists, literary critics, uh, you know, and the like? Uh, Well, you know, America has a repeating pattern of what are called Comstock panics or moral panics. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think David spends a fair amount of energy talking about that. And you really can see the same pattern in terms of society's reaction to the motion pictures, back in the 1920s and the 1930s, Uh, uh, rock and roll in the 1950s, Video games in the 1980s and the 1990s, uh, hip hop, hip hop, and uh, music later on. Uh, as you say, when there are things that are touching young people, somebody gets nervous and looks and sees out of the material that's being created what doesn't match society's either norms or more puritanical streak, and somebody starts worrying. And pretty much as soon as the comic books began to exist, people were occasionally writing articles that said, eh, you know, we're not, we're not sure children should be reading this. They should be reading something more serious, more 
uplifting, whatever moralistic concerns they brought to bear, often without really trying to acquire any deep knowledge or looking at the difference between the comics that were very sweet and wonderful, and there were some that were enormously charming, um, and it would be very hard to argue were bad for a child in any way, and there were some that were trash, because uh, every medium produces a fair amount of trash. Um, so those, those arguments begin to be made by the early 1940s. They get kind of loud af- after the war. Prior to the war and during the war, there was a reasonable assumption that comics were being read by adults as well as by children. It was, again, because of the differences in literacy. By the end of the war, comics began to be perceived specifically as a children's medium. And there was also a genre of comics called crime comics, led by a title called Crime Does Not Pay, that became very successful at that point. But in, but in fact, and, the, 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 the visual message, according to uh, what the book tells us, is that uh, crime, crime seemed to pay in some bizarre, uncomfortable way, right, in these comics? Well, a lot of the, a lot of the crime comics consisted of, let's say, a six-page story, the first five and a half pages of which were a lurid crime, and finally in the last three or four panels, oh, yeah, and we've caught him and he's going to jail. Um, <laughs> it, it was not um, not a morally uplifting message by anybody's standards. So it, um, I, I remember one thing from the book that was interesting is that <clears throat> one of these... Uh, uh, denunciations of comic books occurred, um, I think, during, uh, you know, several during World War II, but uh, somebody was condemning them because they were warping kids' minds and shouldn't be published or any, anybody shouldn't read them. And somebody responded, some newspaper columnist, that, um, well, the Marines, you know, out in the Pacific who were, you know, just in, just attacked Iwo Jima, they read them, the Marines read them, <laughs> which is an interesting question, you know. Well, the soldiers, the soldiers and sailors read comics in terrific quantities. That's pretty well documented. Uh, and in fact, really helped spread the American comic book across the world as World War II and progressed and the occupations thereafter progressed. Uh, created lots of little subcultures of American-like comics in, in different countries or opportunities for American publishers to continue to export or sell foreign rights to their material for many, many years. Um, but I mean, the, the key question is, one, the, the entire form of comics was being painted with this brush based on reactions to what people perceived as the most establishment-challenging material. And a lot of the campaigners against comics were particularly flawed in their approach to it. Probably the most famous or infamous campaigner against the, the form was a psychologist named Frederick Wortham. He was a, psychi- he, a psychiatrist, a doctor, right? Mm-hmm. Was he? Yeah. Th- uh, he, yeah. He wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent um, towards the towards the peak of this moral panic. Um, and he claimed a great deal of research done on this 
couple of years ago, a researcher, uh, Dr. Carol Tilly, um, went back and did a fabulous job picking apart Wortham's original research notes that were on file, and it's the shoddiest research imaginable. But but uh, back in the day when he was when when he was first becoming uh, the uh, medical expert on how comics were warping children's minds and creating juvenile delinquency, which is a big fear and. In the fifties, mm-hmm. I mean, when he was doing that, he was a very impressive character. He was testifying in front of a Senate committee, right? He was very, he was very impressive, and in fact, he had done some very impressive work in other parts of his career, uh, working with clinics in Harlem. Um, this, he, it's not that the man didn't have skills and knowledge. Um, there's significant evidence that this was not his best work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and a no, lot of it, yeah. a lot of it seemed to reduce itself to his showing up where there were a group of juvenile delinquencies and saying, "You're a juvenile delinquent. Did you ever read comics?" <laughs> well, that's a pretty uncontrolled experiment. He could have also asked, "Did they ever drink milk?" Because eating comics was as common a childhood experience in America at that time as drinking milk. So any group would have identified, saying that they had, yes, of course they read Batman. Well, the, the comic books um, in the 40s and 50s had gotten to the point uh, where they were selling millions and millions of copies every month. And then, um, but w- when Wortham wrote this book, The Seduction of, uh, of the Innocence, Seduction of the of Innocence? Yeah. In, uh, the, in 1954, uh, it was at the same time. This is this is what's so interesting about Haydu's book and about uh, something where we can all look at. This was after the World War II. The Russians were becoming the evil empire. There were uh, spies, the Rosenbergs. There was communism, communists everywhere, and it was the time of McCarthyism, of Senate mm-hmm. investigation committees, and then also the same time as the Kefauver Kefau- investigations to organize crime. So the Senate committee was set up to investigate uh, what they saw as uh, uh, the horrible spread of uh, out-of-control juvenile delinquency. It's interesting to me that all these things happened at the same time. Well, you know, the, there are cultural tides, and there are points in cultures, I think, when society says, Something is wrong. We have to do something about what is going going wrong in our world, and we want to blame someone. And you see cultural tides turning in ways like that. And it, for a time, makes behavior that in a wiser time might be impermissible or rude or rejected. It gives gives it license until people stand up to that, and you have a McCarthy until you have um, a Murrow and uh, one of the significant but less heralded fighters against McCarthyism was a cartoonist named Walt Kelly, who did a wonderful newspaper strip called Pogo. Oh man. Yeah, my father, my father, my father loved that, and he passed on the strips to me, and also the books. I have all the Pogo books. I love that stuff, and it was very, uh, yeah, amen. and it was brave in the uh, in the, um, uh, he worked, I think, for a newspaper in Atlanta, but it was a syndicated strip, and um, he was syndicated nationally. He was he was living in the east, mm-hmm. 
you know, they're doing beautiful uh, hardcover reprints of the material. There's three volumes of the of the twelve of the strip that have been published so far. The fourth is about to come out. His uh, daughter just passed away a couple of months ago, uh, and the volumes are being edited by Mark Evanier, a historian of the field who had been uh, close with close with the daughter for many years. Um, and gorgeous volumes, and Kelly takes on takes on McCarthy in the strips. Murrow takes him on, obviously more powerfully through television. Um, but the strips had audiences of millions of people as well. I mean, television wasn't in that many homes in 1954. Um, I don't remember the exact year of Murrow's uh, attack on McCarthy. 54, 56, maybe. Um, people have to stand up when when these things are going on and resist, to use the modern term. So the uh, the the reactive spasm, you know, the conservative reactive spasm, like you say, which happens all the time. I mean, you know, we've got this with family values and the religious right in the '80s, and it's complicated. But some some of what's going on right now, the people who seem to be following or elected Trump, these kinds of denunciations of uh, out-of-control crime and delinquency, and often it's connected to, you know, people who are different, immigrants, people like that. Um, this got to be really, really, I mean, in the, in the 50s, you had people, you had the PTA, the American Legion, and very strongly, uh, as always, um, religious institutions and, and churches all over the place. And what what astounds me, something I never knew before, is that, um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this, uh, that around the late 1940s and 50s, in this reaction and this fear and hysteria on the part of, I guess, conservative America or middle-class America all over the country, children were encouraged by adults to gather comic books into the tens of thousands, and they had book burnings all over the country. I never knew this before. Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of the evidence on that was put together by David in doing the book. Um, you know, it, it was the sort of thing that was passed down as uh, cautionary tale within the comic book industry, but it had not received much notice in the wider world once it was over. Um, but you see incredible photographs of just basically giant dumpsters being assembled in towns and kids be kids bringing their piles of comics to be burned um, and this is this is only this is only a very short time historically after the Nazis it's amazing to me how ignorant and amnesiac people can be you know well I think these, these are reoccurring traumatic behaviors um, when people are afraid, they look for what to blame, who to blame. Change is frightening, um, and there are and there are bad actors in the process. And so, if you look back on some of the material that was published in comics at that time, there's some that you you would de- defend on the basis of the First Amendment principle. But you would not defend on the basis of, yeah, this is an honest literary effort to try to do something <laughs> good. Um, I mean, some of, 
Yeah, it was it was it was crap, as you say, and it was also it was really crazy. I mean, said this this there was this uh, wave of comic books um, um, in the fifties. I guess it was in the fifties, terror and horror comic books. And I remember um, I was eight years old in nineteen fifty three, and I was sitting in a barber shop, you know, and, and living in a part of the city in New York City where you could sort of walk the, walk around the streets by yourself, you know, out in the fringes of Queens, sitting in a barber shop waiting for the barber. And I reach into the bin where all the comic books are, and there's Tales of the Crypt. Um, wow, that was a wonderful comic. <laughs> but it was scary. I mean, it, the, yes. the, the, cover I, the cover I saw, or the illustration, it sort of jumbled in my mind, was of some deformed maniac um, killing people in a wine press, a giant wine press, and then drinking their blood and talking about what a great vintage it was. I mean, and I'm sitting there you know, reading this, waiting... Waiting for my hair to get, waiting for my crew cut, you know what I mean? So uh, when I, <laughs> a, a, lot, a lot of these comics really were, I mean, really. I mean, you can't make a connection or condemn them, like you say, based on First Amendment principles, but they were really awful, right? You know, Tales from the Crypt was part of the EC Comics line. Were Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, uh, a couple of science fiction titles. The writers and artists on that line were some of the best creators who ever worked in comics. The material was very shocking. It was intended to be shocking. It was done for O. Henry-type stories, but it was done as horror material. Uh, one of the classics of the period is something called Paint the Meat, It's the Humanity, about a butcher who ends up selling human body parts <laughs> out of his uh, butcher counter. Um, but there were also stories like Judgment Day, um, drawn by actually my first mentor in the field, a wonderful creator, artist, and editor named Joe Orlando, um, which was about a masked alien coming to Earth to judge whether Earth was fit to join galactic civilization, decides it's not, and in the last panels as he takes off to return to galactic civilization, he takes off his helmet and you see that he's a black um, that was startlingly brave for, I think it was first published in 1954. Um, I think what's, what's interesting about that incident is that um, it bumped up again. Uh, so the comics were under attack, especially EC comics, um, uh, all this horror and terror and weirdness and strangeness. They're under attack from all directions. There were fines. Uh, there was jail terms possible for people who sold comic books. I mean, it was an extraordinary effort. State legislatures, cities got involved, like I say, the federal and government. Federal, yeah. uh, and then they set up their own, um, in reaction to this, the comic book industry, or most of them, or a lot of them, set up their own self-censorship commission. And the, the, incident, the story you mentioned, which is a really wonderful story, um, uh, everything was sort of pre-censored. The people would take the art to them and the stories and this story was, and, and say, is this okay? And they would say, no, too much sex, uh, you know, draw women less curvy, uh, too much violence. So they were just taking the air out of it, right? It was, it was burglarizing the material. It was trying to, it was, this was, a, again, this is a common model. This was modeled on what had happened in the movie business, what was called the production code or the Hayes Code, where they instituted rules, like if you've got a man or a woman alone in a bedroom, they each must have at least one foot on the ground mm -hmm. constantly. Um, could make for some interesting uh, 
dynamics, perhaps. <laughs> um, but you see movies divided in historic terms into the pre-code and then the post-code period, um, and the after the production code, it becomes much safer. So the comic book publishers, most of most of the major companies, united to form a code to protect themselves against, kind of against each other, and to identify to readers, they had a code seal that went on the covers, this is safe for children to read. Hmm. As you say, the perception at that time became that this was a kid's medium, so this was approved by the Comics Code Authority. And they set what they thought were safe boundaries that would end the witch hunt, was being waged against them. And if it coincidentally drove some of the publishers who the big publishers didn't like out of business, that wouldn't be such a terrible thing either. Hmm. Um, And in fact, it did push EC Comics into giving up business, and they retreated. They had started a comic that was a wonderful satirical thing called Mad, and they turned Mad into a magazine and retreated from the traditional comic business entirely. Well, it's sad to think about this kind of stuff, but like you say, in this country, I suppose in other countries too, I'm not as familiar with other countries' history as as my own, there are, even starting with the Salem witch hunts, these reactive spasms based on fear, hysteria. There are connections made which are irrational and sometimes outrageous. There's government uh, punishment, there are fines, there is censorship, I mean... Look at all the people who were, whose lives were ruined or lost their jobs during the McCarthy era. These things go back and forth, back and forth. And uh, I think the big thing with this Dr. Frederick Wortham was his connection to what people saw as, as this plague, this, this like uh, overwhelming tidal wave of awful juvenile delinquency and crimes and misbehavior and re- revolt against uh, authority was, you know, a big thing. And then, you know, you, you sort of sail into the 50s where everything is white bread and clamped down. And then you get the revolt of the 60s and everybody. So it's uh, what? Synthesis, uh, antithesis, uh, no, thesis, antithesis, and uh, synthesis, right? It always happens. Yeah, I think certainly in American history, we see these reoccurrent patterns. The the anti-immigrant sentiment goes back to being something that was called the Know-Nothing Party back uh, over a century ago. Uh, the immigrants they were railing against at that point were such horrible and outrageous groups as the Irish. Um, but there's a there's an ease at othering people and saying that what is wrong with what's going on is the other is doing something. There's a discomfort with change. There's always going to be some part of the culture that is either attacking the mainstream or questioning the mainstream or exploiting the undercurrents in what we're interested in reading. And there are real challenges in figuring out how to balance this. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an extraordinarily challenging time, I think, for parents now bringing up children where you've got the kid attached to a screen that attaches to the entire universe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you were growing up, when I was growing up, 
there's about a decade between us, but we're both certainly well on the far side of this. Um, our parents could have some control over what we read. They certainly could have control over what we watched on television or listened to on radio, because there was probably in most homes just one instrument uh, that brought that media into the house. Now, most children end up with a direct connection to the Internet, whether it's through a computer in their home or through a smartphone at a very young age. And there are some tools to enable a parent to have some control on it, but they're not fabulous tools. They're certainly not easy tools to use, as I understand it. Um, and as a parent, you might want your child to grow up, maybe not in a bubble, but at least in some kind of controlled environment as they learn things at an age where they're old enough to understand it and appreciate it or not to be frightened while they're getting their their haircut. Well, um, <laughs> one of the things that makes this difficult, though, what you're talking about, is back in the day, let's say with comic books, um, when I was reading them in the 50s and, and the 30s and 40s and whatever, um, grown-ups, parents, were not reading them. Children were reading them, and they were discreet. You published them, and you, know, you bought them in stores. If they wanted to outlaw them, they would just keep uh, people from distributing them or selling them in stores. But these days, uh, since generations share this, in other words, there's no boundary line. There's no separation between what the kids are watching. Uh, it's like a kind of a seamless thing into, uh, you know, teenagers, into young adults, into adults. Everybody is watching this stuff, and everybody's clicking on everything all the time. There, to condemn or control, as you pointed out, is much harder now than it used to be because everything is shared, and the whole medium, we're all fish swimming in the Internet like an ocean. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I remember when my youngest my youngest child came home from a visit to a friend's house some years ago, and his mother, who had tried very hard to bring her kids up in a healthy, controlled environment, um, thought he had seen some inappropriate movie and was upset about it. And I had to say, he's got a laptop that he has access to with a connection to the Internet. Mm -hmm. um, he's seen things you've never seen. Uh, I don't know what they are. I don't necessarily want to know what they are. Um, but he's had access to the world that we never had. Uh, when I was his age, maybe you had seen a picture of a native in National Geographic wearing not all her clothes. Yeah, that was the uh, sex. That was the sex in, uh, in, in those days. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, God, God knows what he was able to see by that age. It seems to have turned out quite well, but uh, it, it is yeah. an interesting challenge in parenting these days. Um, I'm getting a signal that we're just about at the end uh, of the show here, and um, I really appreciate your coming on and talking about all this. Obviously, it's a subject that goes deep and wide, and we could talk more about it, too. Uh, my guest today is, uh, is Paul Levitz. And um, he is, among other things, uh, spent a life in comics, uh, editor, writer, executive at DC Comics, eventually the president and publisher of DC Comics, and historian and, uh, and an educator on the subject. The, uh, the book uh, that you, um, that you uh, authored was 75 Years of DC Comics, 
The Art of Modern Mythmaking. And I assume that's available like everything else. You get it on Amazon or in stores, right? Actually, a new edition of it was just issued about uh, a month and a half ago, so it should be pretty easy to find at this point. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you for exploring the subject. Take care. Okay. Uh, That's uh, Paul Levitz and... um, Comics, yes. There's so much more to talk about, too, which I may do as a part two about world as violence comes from. Is it in us? Is it in the world? Is it both? Is it mix? This thing about the 50s, though, I remember juvenile delinquents was a big, scary thing. Either you were one or you were afraid of them and they were going to ruin uh, the entire country. But there was never any connection made between them and or what caused them. There was always an argument about what caused juvenile delinquency. Who are these kids? Same old stuff, right? But uh, the, oh, the, the, the answer was always um, lock them up, put them away, maybe give them a little psychological treatment, but basically get rid of them. Hey, you! Who, me, Officer Krupke? Yeah, you! Give me one good reason for not dragging you down to the station house, you punk! Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand It's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand Our mothers all are junkies, our fathers all are drunks Golly Moses, naturally we're punks Gee, Officer Krupke, we're very upset We never had the love that every child ought to get We ain't no delinquents, we're misunderstood Deep down inside us, there is good There is good, there is good, there is good There is untapped good Like inside, the worst of us is good That's a touching good story Let me tell it to the world Just tell it to the judge I Dear kindly judge your honor My parents treat me rough With all their marijuana They won't give me a puff They didn't want to have me But somehow I was had Leap on lizards That's why I'm so bad What? Officer Krupke, you're really a square This boy don't need a judge He needs an analyst's care This just his neurosis That ought to be quite He's psychologically destroyed. I'm destroyed. We're destroyed. We're destroyed. We're the most destroyed. Like we're psychologically destroyed. Hey, hey! In the opinion of Escort, this child is depraved on account he ain't had a normal home. Hey, I'm depraved on account I'm deprived. So take him to a head shrinker. You. Who me? Oops. My daddy beats my mommy, my mommy clobbers me, my grandpa is a commie, my grandma pushes tea, my sister wears a mustache, my brother wears a dress, goodness gracious, that's why I'm a mess. Yes, Officer Krupke, he shouldn't be here. This boy don't need a couch, he needs a useful career. Society's played him a terrible trick. Unsociologically, he's sick. I am sick. We are sick, we are sick, we are sick, 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 like we're sociologically sick. In my opinion, this child does not need to have his head shrunk at all. Trouble delinquency is purely a social disease. Hey, I got a social disease. 
So take him to a social worker. Which way? Dear kindly social worker, they tell me get a job, like be a soda jerker, which means like be a slob. It's not I'm anti-social, I'm only anti-work. Glory, I've that's why I'm a jerk. Officer Popkey, you've done it again. This boy don't need a job, he needs a year in the pen. It ain't just a question of misunderstood. See, down inside him, he's no good. I'm no good. We're no good. The trouble is he drinks. The trouble is he's crazy. The trouble is he stinks. The trouble is he's growing. The trouble is he's grown. Puppy, we got troubles of our own. Officer Puppy was down on our knees. Cause no one wants a fellow with a social disease. Officer Puppy, what are we to do? Yeah. (laughs) Defiance of authority, the great American uh, conflict between individualism, outlaw behavior, and the forces of repression. It's like the theme all the way from the very beginning of the country, the formation of the country up till now. There's no end to this this, this constant tug of war. Anyhow, um, comic books uh, were supposed to warp everybody's brain and cause all kinds of terrible troubles. They didn't do anything of this sort, of course. In fact, what they did was provide some uh, special place to hide out, an imaginative outlet for kids and a community of people who could say, yeah, this is, look, this is me too. The book I was referring to before, which is a terrific book, is called The Ten Cent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare and How It Changed America. And you can get that on Amazon like you can get everything else in the world on Amazon. Um, yeah, you got to keep the devil in the hole, but you can't keep the devil in the hole. It keeps popping out of the hole all the time, and people always keep trying to do it, and the devil keeps popping out, and thus the world turns. Uh, before we leave today, I want to say thank you again to everybody for listening. You want more uh, information about me or get on my mailing list, go to Fader Files, F-E-D-E-R-F-I-L-E-S.com, FaderFiles.com. And before I leave today, let me just say happy anniversary to my wife. It's been uh, rough and beautiful the whole way. Most of the rough comes from me. Most of the beautiful comes from her. So happy anniversary. And uh, let's keep the devil down in the hole. Mm-hmm.